0: Hello, good evening, everyone. It's a great privilege to welcome you on behalf of the Grantham Research Institute and King's College London to this evening's panel discussion on climate change litigation achievements and challenges. Uh, My name is Veerle Hevert. I am a law professor here at the LSE and I am co-chairing this event this evening together with Dr. Megan Baumann who is an Associate Professor at King College Law Department and the Director of the Center for Climate Change Law and Governance. Well, let me begin by wishing you a Happy New Year. May you find joy, hope, and purpose in the decade to come. We'll need it. Um, But now, I'm going to actually briefly whisk you back to 20 December 2019, when a collective digital uh, cheer went up in the Twitterverse, as the Dutch Supreme Court in the Urgenda decision ruled, finally and definitively, that Dutch climate change mitigation targets were legally inadequate. Now Urgenda is rightly hailed as a seminal case, Um, and this recent Supreme Court decision is, is a perfect invitation for us to kick off our discussion this evening. But icons also come with certain limitations. The field of climate change litigation is so much richer in terms of its geographical spread and also in terms of the kinds of issues and claims that are being brought before courts and certainly in terms of the success of the outcome. Uh, So part of our mission this evening is also to look beyond Urgenda towards a broader assessment of the field to evaluate the range of impacts that climate change litigation has already had and also to explore new avenues for how we litigate, for what arguments we make, for how we write and how we think about climate change litigation. Now in a moment I am going to hand over to my co-chair to introduce our our really fantastic panel of experts. But first, just a few um, housekeeping notes. So the first section of this discussion will be a chair-led discussion by panelists of key questions, after which we will open um, uh, to a Q&A. Now, during the Q&A, the usual expectations apply. Please briefly introduce yourself. And remember that the Q in Q&A stands for question, <laughs> not for quixotic quest in search of a quip. Finally, also please be advised that this event is recorded. Please put your phones on silent, but as you can see there are Twitter hashtags, etc. So tweet and Instagram and whatever else you have steam away uh, to your heart's content. And so with that, I'm now going to uh, turn over to Megan. Thank you so much, Vela, and welcome everyone to tonight's
1: exceptional panel on climate litigation. We really are incredibly lucky, very privileged to have the participants, the speakers that we have tonight. So let me introduce them to you. Um, Professor Randall Abate is professor in the Department of Political Science and Sociology and also holds an endowed chair in marine and environmental law uh, and policy at Monmouth University. Dr. Emily Barrett, to his left, is a lecturer in Tort Law and also co director of the Transnational Law Institute at King's College London. Professor Jacqueline Peel, sitting to the left of Emily, is a professor of law. At the University of Melbourne. And she has joined us literally all the way from Australia. So we are so lucky not only that she is here tonight, but that she is awake (laughs) and (laughs) alive. Um, uh, Dean Harry Osofsky is Dean of Penn State Law and the Penn State School of International Affairs. She's also a distinguished professor of law, professor of international affairs, and also geography at Penn State. (coughs) Welcome, Harry. We also have Tessa Khan, who is a lawyer with the Agenda Foundation and co-founder of the Climate Litigation Network. And then finally, to my right, we have Dr. Joanna Setzer, who is a research fellow at the Grantham Research Institute here at the LSE. So let me open uh, tonight's questions with the first question that I want to direct to Tessa this Supreme Court decision which occurred only on the 20th of December um, is really quite momentous. And we are so lucky to have you here to be able to talk with us directly about what it was like to be there. So I would love to hear from you uh, to describe being in that moment when that decision was handed down for us. And the second thing I'd like is if, if we can look more broadly at the broader implications of that particular ruling if you have any practical examples of the ways in which climate litigation, when it's part of a broader advocacy strategy,
2: um, can create political change. (coughs) So Tessa, please. Thank you so much, Megan, and thank you to King's and to the Grantham Institute for hosting this conversation this evening. Um, So I might actually start by giving everyone a very brief overview of what the agenda case was about. Um, And I'll start by telling you why it was so internationally significant. In essence, that it, it was a case that was resulted in the first time that a court has ever ordered a national government to significantly reduce a country's greenhouse gas emissions by an absolute minimum amount. So in 2015, uh, the Dutch District Court, the District Court of The Hague, ruled that the Government of the Netherlands had to reduce the Netherlands greenhouse gas emissions by at least 25% by 2020 compared to 1990 levels. And you may think that the Netherlands um, is a a particularly green or an environmentally friendly country. It sort of has that reputation, I think, because of all the bikes. Um, But actually, at the time, the Netherlands had one of the highest proportions of fossil fuel in its energy mix. um, And it had among the highest per capita carbon emissions of any rich country in the world. So that was really what prompted um, the Agenda Foundation, together with about 900 Dutch citizens to file a lawsuit against the Dutch government demanding that it reduce emissions by at least 25% by 2020. And that resulted in 2015, as I mentioned, in a positive order from the Dutch District Court, and, but from the Hague District Court rather, and that was hailed at the time um, as being a groundbreaking decision. Um, and it was a decision that was made on the basis that the government owed its citizens a duty of care to prevent foreseeable harm. And that the harm in this instance was the catastrophic consequences of the climate change that we're inviting with the current trajectory of greenhouse gas emissions that we're on. Um, And even though it was hailed as a historic decision, I think there are a lot of people who thought it was a bit of a fluke. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And so there was a lot of anticipation. Naturally, the government appealed the decision. Um, And there was a lot of anticipation as to what the Court of Appeal, which was the next appellate court, would decide. And in 2018, the Court of Appeal upheld the lower court's decision. And um, in that instance, it held that the government was actually in breach of two articles of the European Convention on Human Rights, which is an instrument that every government in the Council of Europe has ratified. So that's quite significant. Um, for anyone contemplating whether or not governments are acting lawfully on the basis of their human rights obligations when it comes to their Commitments to mitigate climate change. So that was in 2018 the government appealed yet again to the final appellate court in the Netherlands Which is the Supreme Court? Um, And on the 20th of December as you've now heard a couple of times the Supreme Court once again found in agendas favor and upheld The lower court ruling and that really marks the end of the road um, For the decision there is no further Route for appeal um, which is amazing and historic and a huge relief as you can imagine to all of us so as for the moment I think itself when the court delivered the decision you know there was just a huge eruption in the courtroom Um, at the moment I think people twigged that that was the the direction that the reasoning was going in Um, and it was a packed room really because there have been a huge community of people who have been supporting the case plaintiffs in the case or otherwise following the case in the netherlands since 2013 and i think that really speaks to the broader advocacy strategy that agenda developed that has made the case so effective and impactful in the netherlands because of course we can talk about court cases and interesting legal judgments with you know great intellectual legal reasoning, but what really matters and I think is particularly urgent in the context of climate change is the difference that it makes to the politics of climate change and to the amount of carbon that we're sending into the atmosphere. Um, And the good news is that because of the very deliberate strategy that Agenda had to build public interest um, and support for the case from the very beginning, it's had a transformative impact actually on Dutch climate change policy making. So just to give you a quick example of how that is, Even though the the Dutch government appealed the decision in 2015, in the immediate aftermath of the decision, the Dutch parliament uh, agreed to phase out coal-fired power. It passed a new Climate Change Act. It enacted a new emissions reduction target for 2030 that at the time was considered to be one of the most progressive targets in the EU. Um, And in the last few months, indeed in the last month, just in the lead up to the Supreme Court decision, the Dutch parliament has adopted several motions asking the government to publish the measures that it's taking to implement the court's order because you know, we're running out of time. It, the decision relates to what needs to be done by the end of 2020 and the government, because of the amount of public scrutiny and political pressure that agenda was able to generate, committed in 2015 after the initial decision to implementing the order and reducing emissions accordingly. Um, I think the other thing, you know, that we should note that is a lesson for anyone contemplating strategic litigation is that Agenda really thought very hard about what comes after you get a good decision. And often legal teams think very hard about the legal strategy and the arguments, but they don't think so much about the implementation phase, which can be just as challenging when you have an ambitious decision that has, you know, structural economic implications. Um, And Agenda, for example, in the last year worked with about 750 organisations and businesses to develop 50 measures um, that are in themselves enough to contribute to closing the emissions reduction gap that the Dutch government has to meet. Um, And it's published those measures um, over the last year. And to build public support from the very beginning of the case, so going back to 2013 when, um, or, or even before 2013 when the case was being developed, Agenda kind of pioneered what, what's been coined as crowd pleading uh, whereby they actually invited the public to submit their ideas for legal arguments and legal evidence that could be used to develop the basis of the case. And of course the legal team didn't use all of those arguments and ideas. <laughs> But it did really help to build public ownership over the case and real investment um, by the broader community from the beginning. Thank you so much, Tessa. Um,
1: Obviously, climate litigation, we're looking at the global dimensions as well. And I want now to turn, actually, to to Jackie. Can we explore, I guess, how judicial outcomes in other jurisdictions, particularly the Global South, are relevant here? if we look at examples of litigation in the Global South, are we looking at similar or different models to those that, that are um, uh, being realized in the Global North? And particularly, what can we say about those kind of global developments for judges as governance actors in this space?
3: All right, thank you, Megan, for the questions. And uh, I was also taking notes during um, Tessa's uh, opening um, uh, answer to the question because it's, it's wonderful to hear um, from those who are deeply involved in these cases um, how uh, those cases have been brought over time and some of the work that's being done to ensure that they have real impact on the ground. Um, the kind of case that Tessa was talking about, the Hegenda case, is... Um, a very high profile example of climate litigation that's coming out of a global north jurisdiction. And in general, what we've seen in climate litigation is that most of the cases have come from the global north, and I think um, Hari's going to talk a little bit later about how many cases have come out from different jurisdictions, but the vast bulk of them are coming from global north countries. In terms of the global south, though, you might expect that that's probably where some of the greatest needs and challenges are in terms of addressing climate change. We know, for example, that our largest global emitter of greenhouse gases at the moment is China, um, and the developing world is increasingly a big part of the story on climate change, both in terms of mitigating or reducing emissions and also adapting or responding to climate change. In terms of litigation, though, we're really just at the beginnings of seeing any litigation in the Global South. The number of cases is relatively small compared to other parts of the world. Um, And I think they've really only emerged in the last five years. So we're still learning a little bit about what litigation in those parts of the world might look like. I've done some recent work with a colleague at um, National University of Singapore, Jolene Lin, looking at cataloguing some of these cases. And also, um, Johanna uh, maintains a great database through LSE that tracks all of the developments around the world as well. And there's some different features that you can see emerging in the Global South cases, as opposed to those in the Global North. One that's particularly important is that Um, Often, cases that are emerging in the Global South might not be um, all about climate change. So it has been the case in the Global North that often cases, um, particularly high profile cases like Uganda, have a very clear message about the need to reduce emissions and are framed in the context of doing something on climate change. What we often see in the Global South is that there is some resistance to that kind of framing, and that what you might see instead is a more peripheral framing of climate change in a case. So it might look like a case about um, development, or about forestry, um, or about air pollution, but it could still have impacts for the climate. The second thing that's often quite different um, is, or that has is a particular feature of a lot of the Global South cases and an emerging feature of those in the Global North is the use of rights-style arguments. So Agenda is a case that um, also involved um, arguments based (coughs) on human rights. Um, but this has been particularly an avenue that we've seen in a lot of the Global South cases. Partly this is because there are um, constitutional rights provisions, including environmental rights provisions included in constitutions of many uh, countries in the Global South. So um, it's partly uh, an accessible legal avenue that might be used, but also often because um, litigants in these countries are framing the issues in terms of justice, equality and equity which might correspond more with the rights framing. But that trend of using rights more is also emerging as we, uh, we're seeing in the Global North as well. Um, and the final thing that we tend to see with Global South cases is that the resourcing and the The kind of structures around bringing environmental public interest litigation are not always there, they cannot always be assumed in the way that they might be for a lot of Global North jurisdictions. So the battle is harder for a lot of the groups that are looking at bringing this kind of litigation and often there needs to be some real sort of um, bravery on the part of the groups that are taking this. They often need a lot of resourcing cooperation both with other groups in the north and increasingly other groups in the south to bring these kinds of cases and generally the approach has been to use things or tools that are pretty tried and true and tested, things that uh, the groups are familiar with using in other environmental litigation um, rather than trying the the most ambitious legal strategy but that might change over time. in terms of the other part of the question that Megan asked which was um, judges as a as governance actors so to what extent are we seeing courts and judges become effectively governors in the space of climate change um, I mean the reason that we have this discussion is because um, of the failure of governments largely to do the governing um, I th- speak at the moment in a context where my own government in Australia, despite half the country being literally on fire, has difficulty accepting the concept that those fires are in any way linked to climate change and that there should be a change in our policy to move away from a dependence on coal, um, both in our electricity sector and export and to change our targets on emissions reduction. So it's not surprising when you have that kind of resistance from governments that there is a move to look at courts as a way to address these issues. So I think courts are reluctant governors in this area um, because it is quite a challenging position for courts to be put in where normally we'd be looking to governments <coughs> to do governing um, and courts have particularly, particular limitations as governors. They are bound by the law as it exists. They they can interpret it, they can extend it, they can't enact a new law. Um, There's boundaries in most jurisdictions between the policy side of things and the legal side of things. And um, the Uganda decision um, also had to grapple with this question of separation of powers, what's directly in the government sphere, what should be in the sphere of the courts, and in fact an important ruling from that decision has been um, a clear message that courts have a role to play in this area. Um, Expertise, Uh, how many of you, if you are legally trained and then went on to be judges, would feel comfort in dealing with a lot of technical scientific evidence and climate modelling? Um, and judges are always dependent on what cases are brought before them. So in many ways they're dependent on the, um, the creativity of lawyers um, and the kinds of way that cases are framed to be able to make decisions that have impact. So I'll stop there, Megan, and I'm
0: happy to um, talk further, but I'd like to hear the comments of others. Excellent. Thank you, thank you Jackie. Um, if, if we're gonna pick up on this issue <coughs> of impact in a moment. But before we do so, I would just like to briefly also, uh, if, you, if you'd like, get a, get a brief reaction from Joana because Joana has also done a lot of research on climate litigation in the Global South and I think is the editor of the first and maybe so far the only book on Brazilian climate change litigation. Um, so I was wondering whether, if you would like to, to add any, any further observations to the points that Jackie was making about litigation in the Global South.
4: Yes, thank you, Vili. So, um, well, first, if I may, uh, I wanted to thank all of you for being here. This idea started from one day that Jackie told me that she and Harry were going to be in London on the 9th of January. And we said, maybe let's meet out for dinner. And dinner became this. <laughs> so thank you all <laughs> for, and we have, look, it's, the, the term hasn't even begun, and we have a packed room, which is amazing. So thank you all to, to both of you and all the speakers who came. And, and uh, on the Global South question, uh, it's, it's something that, yes, I've been very interested in. And um, Brazil, which is the country I have looked more at, resonates very much with the description that Jackie said in terms of, how climate change is framed in terms of other problems and actually how climate change in in Brazil where there are a number of cases brought especially by public prosecutors, um, the word climate change doesn't appear in almost any case at all. So for me, uh, an interesting question is also to understand uh, where in countries where you have constitutional rights to the environment, climate change legislation, public prosecutors bringing cases against deforestation for example. So all uh, it ticks almost all the boxes you would need to think, okay, now just say that you're also bringing this case because you want to avoid disastrous climate change that will result from burning the Amazon as well as a loss of biodiversity. But there's not that concept brought and so it's interesting also for me to think about where. Climate litigation doesn't exist, and why it doesn't. So I think there's also there are a few uh, a number of questions that we can still ask and understand what's going on in the global south, how the global south is learning from cases such as agenda because there's definitely a lot of learning, but also what uh, innovations can can be learned from the new strategies that are developed in the global south.
0: Thank you. I'm going to pick up on that later again, but first, I would like to address a little bit more this this, uh, key issue of impact, of impact of the cases, because uh, as Tessa pointed out, one of the key features of uh, uh, Urganda is not just that it's not just a legal victory, it's also something that has caused major political change. Um, But that's not the only impactful case uh, out there. And I would like to turn to Harry now, and if you could give us a kind of a sense of an overview of what have been really the the really impactful cases and where can we expect developments and impactful developments in, in the future?
5: So I want to join everyone else in, in thanking Megan and Birla and Joanna um, for organizing this and, and Grant, the Grantham Institute and King's College for hosting. Also because I'm a dean, I always have to say I speak in my individual capacity and not on behalf of Penn State in sharing my views. Um, so. Um, So as Jackie mentioned, at this point there, I just checked because it gets out of date every few days, Um, uh, there's currently 1,137 U.S. cases that have been filed um, and over 400 around the rest of the world. Um, And that's only counting ones that directly mention climate change. So the vast majority of the cases have occurred in in my jurisdiction um, in, in the United States. Um, the vast – though, though the, the, the human rights cases and the cases directly against corporations tend to be very high profile, um, the, the vast majority of the cases around the world have been statutory cases, cases that interpret statutes, cases that ask courts to enforce statutes, Um, cases around regulation under statutes, so the highest profile to date US case was the first of three cases that went to the US Supreme Court, Massachusetts v. EPA, um, uh, which was over a decade ago now, right? Um, In which the Supreme Court essentially said to the EPA um, under the Bush administration, Either you justify better why you're not regulating motor vehicle greenhouse gas emissions or you need to regulate. Um, and, um, but the, so that case got a lot of attention, um, but, but the vast majority of cases actually aren't kind of high profile cases even like Massachusetts v. EPA, they're what Jackie and I have often referred to as workhorse cases, so, so there have been lots and lots of cases in the U.S around coal-fired power plants um, and incorporating um, into the environmental review process for a new plant the issue of climate change. Um, The vast majority of cases, in addition, um, have focused on mitigation, um, but there's an emerging set of cases in in adaptation. uh, especially in Jackie's country of Australia, so Australia is the second most cases in the world um, after the United States. Um, and it's interesting because we, were, we actually looked at emerging adaptation litigation in the United States a few years ago, and I think us and other commentators have been sort of surprised not to have seen more um, happen in the several years since. The other thing that I really think is important to emphasize when you think about impact um, is that litigation is fundamentally a fairly neutral tool. So a lot of the litigation we're gonna be talking about tonight is pro-regulatory litigation, right? Litigation trying to get action on climate change. But there's also anti-regulatory litigation, and there's also been backlashes sometimes against litigation. And um, And so for example, in the United States, which again has had lots and lots of cases, the trend line that you see, is it really depends whether the government in power is pro-regulatory or anti-regulatory, right? So under the Bush administration, when climate change litigation really started to emerge in the United States, that was a regulation, that was, a, that was an administration, um, uh, it, it, of course it looks very progressive now, but, but, a, but an administration <laughs> um, that um, uh, wasn't regulating on climate change very much. And so, um, a lot of the cases that, those first cases that were emerging were largely pro-regulatory cases. Um, when the Obama administration, which was a very pro-regulatory administration on climate change, um, right, I mean, I, I was sitting in, in Paris when the United States walked into a standing ovation as the member um, of, 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 a high, of a high ambition coalition, something I never thought I'd see in my lifetime, right? Um, there was a lot of anti-regulatory litigation. There were challenges to all of the types of regulation that the Obama administration was, was doing on, on climate change. Um, the challenges have often also come <coughs> at a state level in the United States, um, so, so against states that are trying to do fairly progressive um, climate change regulation or renewable energy regulation. So there have been challenges, for example, under the Dormant Commerce Clause. And so I think it's important when we talk about this question of impact to recognize that that, that while right now, because you have a number of uh, anti-regulatory governments, um, and obviously um, the Trump administration um, has seen largely anti-regulatory litigation, i mean I'm sorry, pro-reg- pro-regulatory litigation um, as it's rolled back most of the Obama administration's policies, um, right? So there's been a ton of pro-regulatory um, litigation, and in particular, um, you know, a clear argument to be made that the Trump administration is in violation of the decision in Massachusetts v. EPA by the rollbacks that it's made. Um, but even in this this era, there is still in the United States some anti-regulatory litigation against progressive states, et cetera. Right. So, so that balance always exists. And then. Two final points I want to make about impact. So Jackie and I have have worked together studying climate change litigation for a number of years. And and one of the things we developed in thinking about impact was, was that we wanted to trace not just the direct impacts of climate change litigation. So the ones that you can say, okay, this case forced the government to do this but also the indirect impacts of climate change litigation. How is it changing social norms? How is it changing government behavior and corporate behavior, right? And often we see in some of the most high profile cases that have a strong direct regulatory impact, like the case you were just talking about, right? The again, case like the Massachusetts VPA case. It's arguable that their indirect impacts are at least as powerful as their direct impacts in terms of the way in which they raise the profile of the problem, the pressure that they create to act, right? So in some ways, the United States Supreme Court's willingness to speak on climate change a decade plus ago was, was... was an incredibly important political moment in the United States beyond the direct judicial impact I mean this case ended up serving as the basis for almost all of the um, regulation that the Obama administration went on to roll out so I think it 's really important when you think in this context about these cases, and this is part of why the final point I want to make that that these cases are most successful when they're part of broader social movements and activities, um, which was which was the point that, that a number of the speakers have made, is so crucial in the context of climate change litigation because um, because what what you see is because those indirect impacts matter so much um, that 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 dynamic is really important. And I'll close with one last example. So I first got involved with climate change litigation back in 2005 when I helped out with the Inuit's petition to the Inter-American Commission claiming that U.S. climate change policy violated their rights. Um, and that case was, was formally in, not successful, right? The, the Inter-American Commission um, sort of declined to, to make a statement in their case. But it was incredibly high profile. There was a lot of public attention to the plight of the Inuit as a consequence of that case um, and a conversation that happened in the Inter-American Commission about environment and human rights and climate and human rights that might not have happened otherwise. So I think when we think about impact, we need to think about in nuanced ways, not just about direct legal impact, but about these broader impacts in how we think about and deal with the problem of climate change.
0: Thank you, thank you for such a, a wonderfully rich uh, answer, Harry, and <coughs> actually, I'm going to abuse my position as chair for just a, a small moment to, to illustrate the, the point even further. Um, on, on the 1st of May of last year, um, the Plan B case in the UK uh, again um, challenging the decision to approve the third runway at Heathrow uh, was Uh, decided by uh, the the court and it actually, you know, the the case was, uh, the claim was dismissed. Um, But again, um, within a week, uh, the government um, declared a climate emergency. Now, I am not claiming a causal connection here, but there is an an element of, of, of raising the profile of kind of bringing these issues more forcefully into the limelight that even unsuccessful cases uh, conceivably also contribute to. Now, I just want to kind of finally tie together the issues of of Global South and impactful cases and just uh, briefly ask Emily whether if there, uh, what about impactful cases from the Global South? Are there any particular cases that you think we might pay even a bit more attention to? Um, Well, I'm gonna follow the pattern of wedding toasts
6: and thank the audience um, <laughs> for attending um, and for sharing this dinner with, with all of us. i stressful sure <laughs> without you, but we're very glad to have you. Um, and I want to speak very briefly about uh, my favorite case, and this is the case of Lahiri uh, and the Federation of Pakistan. And it's my favorite case for a number of reasons. First, it has a very compelling story. Stories are always good. And it has an exceptionally creative judge And to borrow the words of the judge, Mr. Justice Mansour Ali Shah, I think this case was also a clarion call to those of us in the Global North to really pay attention to what is going on in the Global South. Because before Lahiri there were a few cases, there's a case from Nigeria, um, but they largely go under the radar until Mr. Justice Mansour Ali Shah rocks up um, to a conference here in London, bringing his, um, his court orders with him and, really announces to the world at the same time that Agenda is announcing to the world that pay attention, watch us, look what we're doing in Pakistan. So to just give you an idea of what happens in the case for those of you who aren't familiar, uh, Mr. Lahiri is a law student, so pay attention law students, and simultaneously, I've no idea how he manages this, is a farmer, and his family owns a 500 acre sugarcane farm in the southern Punjab region of Pakistan. And he's really concerned because water shortages and temperature changes mean that his family's historic farming is becoming increasingly impossible. So he brings what's called a public interest litigation case against the Federation of Pakistan, compelling relevant ministers and departments to act on climate change, and not to act in a vacuum, but to act in accordance with a stated policy that the Federation of Pakistan had already published. So he files his suit, uh, and Mr. Justice Mansoor Ali Shah gets his hands on it, um, and he responds by setting up a climate change commission, a precedent that had been set in previous environmental cases in Pakistan, and carefully monitors over three years the progress of that commission. One thing he does that makes me smile is that somebody had been reallocated to a a different region and a different job. This poor man is dragged back to this region to carry on doing the job that he had been doing so as not to lose the expertise. Now for those of us educated in the British tradition, it may seem that what Mr Justice Mansour Ali Shah is doing is slightly, I mean not even thinking about the separation of powers. It might appear that he's being activist. Um, but there's kind of a wrong characterization of this decision. He's being active in his role as a supervisor of the government. He doesn't ever dictate what the policy should be. He is merely requiring that stated policy uh, objectives are being fulfilled. And he's also able to do this because he's doing it within a constitutional framework um, that protects certain rights. And this is common to other jurisdictions in the global south when coming out of a period of colonization and excellent new constitutions were produced. And one of the roles of judges was kind of a transformative constitutionalism and transformative adjudication to really breathe life into those new constitutional arrangements. Um, So Mr. Justice Mansour Ali Shah is breathing climate and um, environmental justice life into the Constitutional provisions of um, the Federation of Pakistan. Thank
1: you. Mm. Wonderful, thank you. So looking forward now and focusing on opportunities, um, particularly for innovative legal argumentation and research and education. So I want to go there. Um, so, Randall, um, Jackie mentioned the emergence globally of rights-style arguments. Your new book uh, just came out just a few months ago through Cambridge University Press. Uh, climate change and the voiceless. In that book you track developments, particularly in the US and several other countries, um, about protection of what you call voiceless entities, being future generations, wildlife, and natural resources. Um, So what do you see then as the key mechanisms by which legal innovation, the innovative part of this, may actually help to protect the rights and interests of the voiceless
7: well thank you very much uh, it's a thrill to be here uh, and uh, I'm just grateful to the all of the organizers for for uh, assembling such a an all star cast for this panel and uh, and and I also want to echo how inspiring inspiring it is to see the the audience the size of the audience and if my eyes are working well the age of the audience i mean this is this is your future you're inheriting and and to the extent that any of this discussion inspires you to do, to do more or explore these these very important matters uh, at a deeper level. We've our, our our work is done, as they say. Uh, so, uh, on picking up on Megan's uh, question on, regarding mechanisms. One one thing that I I use to frame the book uh, discussion is climate change is often thought of this catastrophe that we're reacting to and losing the battle against, and and I subscribe to that. Um, In many ways, my my career in focusing in on climate change law and policy almost exclusively in the past ten years um, is quite depressing, Uh, and, and I'm kind of a half the glass is half full sort of person and, and I wanted to take uh, an approach to this topic that, that sees climate change as an opportunity, uh, the climate change crisis, as an opportunity for much needed legal reform uh, and, and picking up on, on the, uh, the recent comment um, uh, regarding the, the Heathrow runway case, the fact that a climate emergency was declared uh, in, in the, on the coattails of that case. This idea of emergency is very important in, in how we respond to uh, the, the climate change crisis. That I, I've done a lot more interdisciplinary study about climate change and what we're doing and what we aren't. And one of the things that keeps coming back is humans are not good at long-term planning, uh, responding to slow onset problems. We're actually pretty darn good at responding to emergencies. That's, that seems to bring out our best. And so framing climate change as an emergency is is one of the initial premises of the book and how that is an opportunity, even though as catastrophic as it is, no one's going to cheer about the, the wildfires in Australia and in the Amazon and in California. But the fact that they happened so close to one another and to such a degree is this emergency messaging that the reality and the rhetoric have to reinforce on a regular basis for the legal responses to be effective. So so moving from that to the voiceless context, the idea is that using courts, as we've been hearing from the panelists, is a way to address systemic change, needed systemic change. So we don't wanna rely on the courts to fix the climate change crisis by themselves, that will never happen. But ultimately, courts can be very effective in addressing systemic social problems that are falling between the cracks in the political branches. And the best example I can give is the the civil rights crisis in in the US in the 60s. That was effectively addressed through a judicial framing of the issue that ultimately addressed a societal problem. And we're very much in the same place with climate change. We can't wait for political leaders to do the right thing when we're facing this urgent systemic problem. That has to be addressed on all fronts, and the, the judiciary is a very important piece of that challenge. So, so part of the book's premise is not saying we're going to fix this by thinking about it differently next <coughs> week. It's about leveraging many of the positive developments that you've been hearing about tonight, and using that as a way to move forward. So, how do the voiceless come into that framing? And basically, the book uh, proceeds from the idea that we've been working with an anthropocentric view of regulating environmental issues, and that has been our fundamental failure. And it hasn't become as clear until recently with the climate change crisis. Basically, we've been regulating in the US and throughout the world, typically regulating environmental problems because they harm human health and safety. We haven't been regulating environmental problems because they are catastrophic to the environment to the intrinsic value of the environment, which would be the natural resources. That would be also the wildlife and and the integrity of ecosystems that are being disrupted. The most effective environmental legal responses have been through that anthropocentric lens that we're gonna regulate water pollution because it's toxic to human health and safety, public health uh, problems. And that's true of many of the other environmental laws in the US. There are two exceptions in the US that were quite encouraging and that I build on in framing the. The uh, thesis of the of, of the proposal, and that is the Endangered Species Act and the National Environmental Policy Act in the U.S. We're a little bit different from those. Does it harm human health and safety? Therefore, we're going to regulate it as an environmental law. And those, those laws had more of a recognition of intrinsic value of, of resources, how we need to operate in a sustainable manner, how we need to understand that species loss is catastrophic, we can't come back from that, and therefore endangered species have intrinsic value for that reason. So the book's framing of what the voiceless means doesn't just include natural resources, and voiceless simply means not being able to represent your own interests in the legal system. So trees can't go to court, animals can't go to court, and the third category of future generations has two pieces to it. One is current youth, and they are the, the driving force of the inspiration that I feel about the, the climate litigation space right now, how many effective youth uh, uh, climate cases are have won or are in the process of moving forward. Mm-hmm. But it's not just those who are not yet able to vote, uh, the the, the Greta Thunbergs of the world, but also the unborn as a piece of that category of what it means to be voiceless. And those three categories taken together are unable to represent their interests and essentially rely on adult humans to be protected. And so the, the premise moves to the point of climate change as this ultimate existential threat is presenting an opportunity, a long overdue opportunity, to move our model of regulation from an anthropocentric lens to an ecocentric lens. Because ultimately, it is in adult humans' interests, as much as it is in the interest of the voiceless, to proceed with environmental regulation in a way that respects the voiceless, that respects ecosystem integrity, that we're in this together, whether we're adult humans or uh, voiceless entities. (laughs) And so uh, the the proposal that I frame moving forward from that proposition is building on a lot of these encouraging developments from climate litigation. And I'll use the Giuliana case uh, from the US as an example. You haven't heard much about that in today's discussion. And that is a framing of two pieces about what needs to happen. Enhanced government stewardship is one piece, that the government needs to be a better protector of the voiceless, those that cannot protect themselves when it comes to climate change threats. And to ensure that that enhanced stewardship ultimately takes hold, a rights-based system where the voiceless would be able to vindicate their interests in court to the extent that government has failed in the enhanced stewardship duties that it is going to be held to. Now, the, the litigation is starting to make those arguments about raising that level of stewardship responsibility, but again, that's not going to get very far one case at a time. The idea, as we've heard, is that those victories in courts are meant to inspire subsequent legislative, perhaps even constitutional uh, responses to identifying how high that government stewardship needs to be. And and the final piece of, of implementing the proposal refers to sustainable development as something that has been valuable rhetoric for a long time but it has not been something that's been effectively implemented to the extent it can be so sustainable development as a paradigm in the climate change crisis needs to be something that we saw in a very famous australian case earlier in, in, the, uh, in, in 2019 um, called the gloucester limited case where Um, Judge Preston in that case identified what we we know as a carbon budget, essentially to the extent that every country can emit so much in the way of greenhouse gas emissions beyond which we are not going to have a sustainable future. Science tells us that. We can regulate in response to what science is telling us. So applying the sustainable development mandate in that kind of capacity, his reasoning was that this proposed new massive coal plant uh, coal mine in, um, in Australia was fundamentally in violation of that sustainable development proposition. It would so far exceed the country's and the world's uh, carbon budget to, to maintain a sustainable future that it's rejected and what was not allowed to proceed. And this is reasoning that could be applied to so many other instances at various, governmental scales that ultimately we need to have a a, a legal framework that identifies what do we mean by sustainable development. It seems very amorphous, but ultimately it's attainable. We have many amorphous standards in constitutional principles. In the US, one that comes to mind is the undue burden standard to determine whether a woman's right to choose has been violated. On a case-by-case basis, a court says that state law imposes an undue burden on that woman's right to choose and it will be struck down. Similarly, in sustainable development terms, we can see an, an opportunity to have a working definition of projects that will exceed a carbon budget that has been identified through science and regulation will be ultimately rejected as unsustainable. And that's something that can be worked out over time and, and narrowing what we mean on, on, from one context to the next. But sustainable development is only really meaningful if we go beyond the rhetoric and ultimately into concrete legal standards and that is benefiting the voiceless and those of us adult humans who are who are running the show and, and doing our best to to protect uh, from the, the threats of the climate crisis.
0: Thank you, thank you very much, Randall. Um, as you were talking, I, so many questions popped up in, uh, in my head, um, which you know we can address at, at the, you know at the di- at the dinner after the dinner. Okay, but just to give a, to, to, to give a, a, a few examples, you, you mentioned that, uh, well, rights-based approaches that you see kind of as, as, a, as a step, as an instrument in moving beyond an anthropocentric uh, approach towards uh, climate change, which is really quite fascinating because we tend to have a kind of, you know, quite anthropocentric understanding of rights, of, of you know, it seems like a very sort of human-based uh, instrument, and it, it this means that we need to kind of reconceptualize rights and rethink uh, the whole notion of of what human rights are. Um, and I was also um, thinking about uh, this this idea of sustainability and using it as a kind of new way of interpreting what the bounds really are, what the boundaries are of reasonable governmental decision making and where does the the boundaries between reasonableness and, and irrationality um so lots of very interesting questions popped into my head and it kind of ties in with uh with the the question i wanted to address to joanna because you have been doing a lot of research into research into kind of looking at what are uh, where has a lot of research been done on climate litigation also what are the areas um where we still need a lot of new work done, where we still need a lot of questions answered. So uh, I would be really grateful if you could share uh, some of the results um, of that research with us.
4: Thank you. Well, um, maybe I won't share results, but I will bring certainly a number of questions. Um, So, well, of course, observing what's happening in climate litigation, and as it was said here, we know that in the past 20 years climate change litigation emerged as a governance tool so it is used by a variety of actors and uh, litigants uh, in a number of scales what's uh, there are a few a number of questions and uh, still matters to be further researched but i think one that is very important is to think about the impact of uh, climate litigation So both uh, Harry and Jackie mentioned, and and they've done already uh, 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 this, they've created this framework to understand the regulatory direct and indirect impacts. And and I think another important issue is to understand what other impacts and what impacts can be quantified, for example, and this is something that we're doing uh, here at the Grantham Research Institute, trying to quantify the impacts of climate mitigation, and uh, in terms of costs, for example. But before that, uh, the questions that I told you. So uh, when we think, we say, okay, so we want to know the impacts of climate mitigation." Maybe you think it's an easy uh, question to answer, but actually it becomes quite tricky if you think, how do you define impacts? Mm-hmm. So ask a legal scholar and you will get an answer ask an anthropologist you have a completely different answer. So there are many ways to understand impact and where you look for impact. Um, So say you decide where you're looking for impact. What cases are you looking? Are you looking at the big high level strategic cases or are you also interested in measuring the impact of the more mundane everyday cases? Are you looking into the impact of the anti-regulatory cases or only the pro, nice, good-looking cases. Then let's say you decided what cases you're going to look into, Um, how are you going to measure? Is it a qualitative type of measurement, such as the direct and indirect impacts, and you want to maybe understand change in behavior, change in corporate behavior, or also you want to try to do this quantitative analysis, and, and. come up with a completely different answer. Another important question is the time frame. So Tessa raised this issue that, well, first there is the pre-litigation stage, then there is the time that litigation lasts for, which in some countries can last for a long time. In Brazil, for example, expect 30 years. And then you have the after uh, you have a final decision. So even when you have an amazing final decision like the one in Agenda, is this going to be enforced? Maybe yes, you find that it's being enforced, but what happens when the next government comes in and then changes the whole thing and it just lasted for those four years? So that's the the, the time issue. And then finally, I think the question that we also have to keep in mind, while we all see how climate litigation has been a powerful mechanism, is also that it might have negative consequences. The easiest one to think is uh, if you get a a bad precedent, so how this is going to mine maybe other cases, but also if you bring so many cases that maybe uh, companies that were thinking about coming up with a climate-friendly technology are afraid that they are going to be accused of greenwashing or something and decide not to do that anymore. Um, so there, there's a lot of nuance to take into consideration when we think about impacts of climate litigation. And now just to f- finalize this, these considerations, uh, to give you a glimpse of what we're thinking in terms of costs of climate litigation, those that can be measured. Again, you can think about direct and indirect costs. So the easiest direct ones are, let's say, the uh, outcome, the decision that determines a company to pay for damages or to uh, pay a fine that was imposed by an administrative um, agency. So easy, you've been, uh, there's a final decision, you have to pay that amount. But this is just the tip of the iceberg of being involved in litigation. I was uh, a lawyer, a litigator myself, and one of the uh, costs that you have to consider is how much you're going to pay your lawyers uh, to defend you along all these years. So that's another considerable (laughs) cost. Then in a few countries, you will have uh, to pay also for fees and eventually also to pay for the other party's lawyer. Um, you also have an issue with uh, insurances, maybe costing more even to pay for litigation. On top of all of this, you have indirect costs. So think about delays in approving projects and something that we are particularly interested in is to understand the reputational losses. So we already raised this issue here. Um, What does it mean to be taken to court? Even if you lose, so can we calculate what happens with stock prices when a case is brought against say one of those carbon major companies? Independently of winning or losing, the moment that a case is filed and that the media uh, has coverage of that, which is now very much the case, the media has been really uh, writing a lot about litigation, especially in the context of all the other uh, movements, then yes, that might be an immediate, immediate loss for a number of corporations. So I think this gives you an idea of how many interesting questions and uh, research projects that we have, mm-hmm. and uh, definitely many more, but in, in terms of impacts, I think this Probably gives you an idea. Thank
1: you. So, has just spoken about the opportunities for legal research and Randall spoke to us about the opportunities in legal argumentation. Mm. Emily, obviously these global developments are creating um, opportunities and and I guess potential changes for the way that we teach and legal education. So, what ways do you see that this, this global climate litigation might actually affect and impact the way that we teach law?
6: Well, I think there are twin pressures on academics as in our role of teachers. And there's a, a commercial pressure, which is a bit of a cynical way to put it, to be more global. Um, and there is a moral pressure to be exposing our students to a less colonized curriculum. Uh, and this is not always easy when you teach a subject like law, especially if you teach a core subject like taught or property. It is unavoidably a domestic subject that is dominated by a certain category of scholar and expert. And even within a subject like environmental law, the peculiarities of a contaminated land regime um, or your waste regime are, again, very much place-based. And if you look at international law, yes, it's a more global subject, but international law is a product of a particular elite set of actors. So actually teaching climate change adjudication really opens up opportunities to teach both in a global way, but also in an increasingly decolonized way, because we're deeply engaging not just um, on a global level, but in, in kind of in the domestic context, which opens up opportunities to show to our increasingly international cohort of students that we are interested in the adjudicative practices of their country, and that they have things to say about their own legal culture that I don't necessarily know. Of course, this comes with challenges. I am very much a British educated lawyer. Uh, Often with these cases, you're dealing with the peculiarities of individual systems. Agenda is a case that was partly based on a very specific provision of the Dutch Civil Code that all of us were rushing to our translations of the Dutch (laughs) Civil Code to try and understand. Um, And it can be hard enough to try and keep on top of the UK case law, but as Hari demonstrated earlier, this is a body of cases that changes daily, um, which is not always easy when you're teaching within the term time to try and keep on top of these cases. But I think this is good. I think it's good for students to see a struggle. It's good for students to know that law is not always packaged in neat doctrinal concepts that have been taught for decades, if not centuries. Um, And uh, and I think what is also good is to be able to invite students into the disruption and the chaos um, that we as academics are facing when trying to make sense of these cases.
1: Excellent. (laughs) And my final question, final question um, for our panelists tonight, I'm going to direct to Tessa to to tie a neat bow on what we've just experienced before we open to audience Q&A. So Tessa, sticking with this theme of opportunities and looking forward, um, and particularly based on your recent success, but also past challenges, maybe that you've experienced personally or that you know of in other areas, what do you see, what do you see, I guess, as the key characteristics of, of looking forward, of, of research in this area, of education in this area, and advocacy, in, in, in what we're really talking about now could be a very brave new world?
2: Yeah. Um, so I guess the first thing that I'd say is that the science and the politics pertaining to climate change is moving so fast at the moment that the opportunities for creative new ways to think about legal accountability in this area are growing kind of exponentially. Um, and I, I guess from a sort of selfish perspective, there are a few discrete tasks that we think it would be really helpful for people to focus on um, in the months and years <laughs> to come. So I'm just going to list those off first before I give a bit more of a, a generalised sort of you know, 30,000 feet kind of perspective. Um, and those discrete tasks, I guess, relate to, um, first of all, Um, I completely agree I think with with Randall's point earlier that we need to think more creatively about rights um, and who is the subject of a right, um, but that said, I don't think we've even begun to scratch the surface of what human rights law is capable of producing in terms of establishing the accountability of the actors that are most responsible for this crisis, namely national governments and the fossil fuel industry. Um, and I feel like we're really on the sort of precipice of understanding that human rights law is very useful. Um, as a tool to characterize the impacts of climate change. We all agree that losing your home is a violation of the right to safe and adequate housing. But I think what we saw in our case, in in the agenda case and what we will continue to see is the use of human rights law to define minimum thresholds of action that governments and businesses have to take in order to be in compliance with their human rights responsibilities. Um, The second thing is that it would be fantastic, um, if there are any scientists in the room, to really see the scientific community kind of lean into the question of how to present the science, obviously not change their conclusions, but the presentation of the science in a way that is conducive to litigation and helpful for um, judges getting across the technical details. So you know, climate models at the moment are packed full of assumptions to just as one example. Um, And another example is that, you know, I guess based again, referring selfishly to our case, um, you know, now that we know that governments that there are binding legal principles that define how much governments need to mitigate climate change, it would be fantastic to see climate scientists modeling what those emission reduction trajectories look like for different countries if they were to comply with their legal obligations. Um, But yeah, taking a bit more of a step back, I guess um, I think the most important thing for any of us researchers, educators, advocates is to at this moment in history just be completely unflinchingly honest about what is required for us not to consign millions of people and species to profound suffering and extinction. Um, And I think that if we are actually honest with ourselves about that, the understanding that you inevitably arrive at is that business as usual is a catastrophic trajectory, um, but that even incremental change will really also entail profound loss. Um, So that if we really want to tackle this crisis in a just way and particularly ensure that the people who are least responsible for it Aren't asked to pay the highest price then that means that we have to act and think radically and politically Um, And I don't mean party politically by that I just mean that we need to think about power in our work and how to shift power away from those parties that bear responsibility for this crisis and how to empower those of us who will be made to bear the consequences of a problem that we've done very little to create. Um, And I think litigation is one tool for doing that in so far as um, using litigation on behalf of people and communities to help them claim their rights um, against governments who aren't acting in their interests but are acting in the interests of, or are captured by um, the, the fossil fuel industry. You know, that can be one tool, but it's certainly not, I think, the only tool Um, So I think you know we just need to generally think ourselves, think whether or not we're committed to shifting and challenging power in the work that we do and that uh, requires us to ask difficult questions about impact um, which has been you know I think a really important subject of discussion, welcome subject of discussion this evening Um, and it requires us to ask you know whose voices and whose narratives we're amplifying in the work that we do.
0: Thank you very much, thank you so much, all members of the panel. By the way, this is my first of several thank you, so you will have an opportunity to (laughs) express appreciation later. Uh, But we are going to move on uh, now to the Q&A section, so please remember the uh, general expectations, introduce yourself very briefly, and stick to just short questions so that we can accommodate as many of you as possible, because we already see lots of hands going up Oh, the gentleman in the middle over there, who was an early bird. No, we so we'll a good we'll yes. start with a few, we'll, we'll start with one question and, and answer, but we may and also kind of start grouping, or, or do you want to group straight away? No, we'll group straight away, we're going to group straight away, two or three.
8: Thank you, my name is Peter Golden, I'm a retired teacher. Um, my question, our, our, our government in the UK is in, is not on course for its fourth and fifth um, budgets, climate budgets. Um, in bre- so it's, it, it's potentially in breach of the climate, it's our own climate change act. So a question really for Tessa or Randall. Um, could you give any tips about how to hold this government accountable? Are there any organizations in Britain uh, linked to the climate litigation network who could help us take our government in Britain to court for failure to meet its own obligations under the Climate Change Act and to failure to respect the lives of people in Britain with 800 people dying this year from heat waves and in the global south, with hundreds of thousands of deaths uh, for which we are partially responsible. So who can, can help take them to court? And uh, when could this be placed on the, an agenda?
0: That's okay, thank you. We will have some more
5: Um, so, my question for the Americans on the
4: panel is, um, do you think that the Beyond Coal litigation strategy of uh, mostly challenging the development um, and the prolongment of uh, existing coal plants in the United States um, could be replicated in the EU? Because there was a lot of interest um, a couple years ago in actually replicating the strategy in EU countries. Um, and as you know, uh, coal plants are one of the major um, uh, contributors to, um, uh, uh, to uh, emissions, um, to carbon emissions in the European Union. So, thank you.
0: Okay, and we'll take one more
9: over here, please. Yes, my name is Stefano Bonf. I'm from Oxford Sustainable Development Enterprise. It's an interest economic <coughs> group operating operators, mainly in Europe and Mediterranean countries. And my question is, in relation with the sustainable development, Here there is a very interesting publication, I think I'm going to buy. It's uh, climate change and the voiceless. Now, I would like to have in the voiceless, let's say, group of of people, the concept of data. Data are not at all mentioned in this type of talking. And data, today we are living in a world of big data, in a world of artificial intelligence, we are leaving, let's say, something that this can bring more. The data could be more a very, very powerful, let's say, issue regarding all this type of mitigation and litigation. I am involved, for example, in Mediterranean countries in developing a data digital hub, where unfortunately the legal aspect is missing, and there is no connection between legal and data. Fortunately, I saw European Union, there's a lot of call where law and data are together in horizontal 2020. I mean, this concept, c- the, the concept read? of knowledge based in the area of policy and, and legal issue should be more put in evidence at educational labor and research, thank you.
0: Okay, thank you very much. We will start with these, connect- Tessa, could you uh, perhaps field the first
2: question? Sure. Um I so this is uh my response is addressed to Peter, I think, the first um Questioner and I mean in short you can be assured that there are people in the UK who are waiting for the right moment Um, And you know as we've discussed there is a lot of thinking that goes beyond just whether or not there's the right legal argument You want to make sure that you have the right political context that lines up with that as well to bring these sorts of legal challenges Um, And there's an organization Plan B that was mentioned earlier that was responsible for one of the challenges to Heathrow's third runway They actually brought a case Um, a couple of years ago challenging the fact that the UK government hadn't revised its 2050 target to bring it in line with the Paris Agreement. They were unsuccessful in that, but it was shortly followed by the UK government revising its 2050 target. So again, you know, it was uh, arguably a very strategic piece of litigation. So Plan B and others um, I know are certainly considering the options for challenging the UK's failure to meet its carbon budgets. And and, Tessa, is it correct that Plan B is still in an appeal, isn't it? Is it still in appeal? It's appealing the Heathrow
0: decision. So there is an appeal pending at the moment. Um, Randall, if I could uh, ask you to address the second question, Adela's question.
7: I'm not familiar with the specific strategies involved with the with the Beyond Coal campaign. Just more generally, I I think that everything we've been hearing about is really about facilitating this transition from fossil fuels to renewables, and and I think that. when, when you think about remedies in this uh, in, in these cases, um, I was speaking with with Tessa uh, prior to this panel that uh, ultimately winning the victory is great, but what does it actually translate into and, and ultimately, I see the 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 end game of all of this litigation is ultimately establishing a mandate for decommissioning fossil fuel in all its manifestations. It's something that we should have hit much sooner than, than we are right now, and frankly, I think the, the EU's doing a better job than the US in that regard, uh, but I think all hands on deck in that effort is is gonna be very important, so hopefully the, the litigation effort inspires the legislative efforts, but I, I'm aware that Germany, I think, has a 2030 target for for, for uh, decommissioning uh, coal-fired power plants, and and that's something that just needs to be inspiring everybody else to get on board. However they get there is, is less important than that they get there. And that's why even in the US, the Green New Deal, as unrealistically aspirational as it is, it started an important dialogue that we didn't have in 30 years, that, that we have to dream it before we can do it. And so I think all of these efforts to transition abruptly from fossil fuels, particularly coal, are, are incredibly important.
3: If we, if Harry and I jointly, but I'll give the response, could just add into that because Absolutely. we would be incredibly remiss on a question relating to the beyond coal strategy in, in the US, which is a plant by plant strategy to try and shut down coal plants using whatever set of environmental tools are possible. Whether that is or could be replicated in Europe, the answer is that it is already underway. And full disclosure here. Um, Harry and I are evaluating the work of a UK-based European um, um, uh, environmental NGO, Client Earth. Um, several of the people from that organisation, indeed the lead of the program, who's working on coal plants um, uh, in a similar campaign to Beyond Coal is here tonight. And so there is a very extensive campaign that's been underway for a number of years, including a lot of litigation strategies that is ongoing across various countries. I think one of the things about coal plant litigation is that often it's not the high profile Uganda style case. It's often workhorse litigation. It's achieving important gains in terms of uh, changing the calculus for uh, fossil fuel companies so that there's an ad- additional sum on the scale, if you like, to to move from, or move out of coal, because of the increasing cost. So be assured that work is ongoing, it might not have the same profile, but it is being undertaken here. Um, And we um, uh, would be very grateful for the fact that we have that insight through being able to evaluate the work of client
0: earth. Thank you so much for that. Um, And actually, Harry, could I address the the third question to you on data?
5: So just a very quick add-on to Jackie's point on the second, and then I promise I'll turn right to the third um, just because I wanted to talk. So, so one of the things I think that's come very clearly out of both the U.S. experience and the European experience thus far is that they're highly jurisdictionally specific, right? So when you're bringing these cold cases, it's really important to understand the context of the country in which you're bringing the cases, um, the differences in the legal systems, et cetera. And so one of the things that, that for example, in the U.S. context that complexifies the analysis um, is that um, one of the things that really changed kind of the, um, really caused a decrease in coal in the United States in its use in power was the advent of hydraulic fracturing paired with horizontal drilling. That technological change, which is kind of the lead into my next answer, um, has played a crucial role in lowering the price of natural gas and in making coal less economically viable in power markets in the United States, and that happened at the exact same time as regulatory changes and litigation. And so, I think when you think about the broader context of these campaigns, you always have to think about these institutionally specific things. But yes, I commend to you, as Jackie did, the the work of of, um, of the coal team um, at Client Earth, um, and as as she acknowledged. It's, Sam Bright's in the audience. Um, In terms of the the question on big data, um, I couldn't agree with you more. So um, I became a law school dean because I think we're at a moment of profound social change in which technology and globalization and the need for cross-cutting knowledge are fundamentally transforming the practice of law, who needs legal services and information, um, and that law schools for the most part aren't figuring out very well how to adapt the way they teach in the face of this profound change. Um, And in particular, in the context of climate change, um, law deals very poorly with fast-moving science and technology, not just in the context of climate change, of course, in health law, in IP law, in um, cyber law, you name it, right? And and one of the reasons, and I and I really was glad to get this to be able to answer this question because it's clear that there are a lot of students in the room. And one of the things I really want to encourage the students in the room who care about these issues to do is to combine legal training with scientific and technological training. So one of the best decisions that I made in my own education. Um, was do, doing this sort of rather peculiar sequencing of a PhD in geography on the, the side. Um, and I ended up being able to learn climate change science from climate change scientists who contributed to the IPCC report. And I began to understand the complexity and the nuance of the science um, in ways that really made me rethink the law and policy of it. So few of the people engaging in making climate change law and policy have that kind of nuanced understanding of the science. Similarly, in the, in the big data realm, right? So, so one of the things, for example, we've created at Penn State Law is the Legal Tech Virtual Lab. We also have this partnership that's sort of a first in the country partnership with the College of Engineering, in which we're trying to look at all of the ways in which engineering and legal knowledge need to come together to solve problems. Our first joint symposium was not on patent law, the place people typically think of, but on election security. So I think that it's really important for this audience that cares about climate change to think about how we can use this technological and scientific knowledge and the rapidly emerging tools, um, particularly as as you described in the big data analysis space and the artificial intelligence space, in order to help us make better law that's more responsive to rapidly evolving science and technology. affects so many issues relevant in society today, but particularly on the climate change issue that we're talking about tonight, the more that we can think in nuanced and complex ways about science and technology in this space, the more we can help make better law, and the more we can support effective litigation. Perfect, thank you. All
1: right, let me open up for the second round of questions. Hands up. Um, uh,
10: Lady in black, first of all. Thank you so much. Um, my name is uh, Athanasia Baziou, and I'm a senior lecturer in journalism at the University of Southampton here in London. But uh, I have a mixed uh, interdisciplinary background in both journalism and media and law, including international environmental law. So, um, among the many interesting things you said, uh, a lot of you mentioned the, the word impact many times, or empowerment. Um, some somebody mentioned how to uh, present science and the journalist person inside me kept thinking publicity, media, media coverage, uh, informing the public and so on. Um, Joanna mentioned uh, that uh, there has been a lot of media coverage in some cases. So I would like to ask the rest of you, I would like to hear from the rest of you, do you think there is enough coverage first of all in the media and secondly the qualitative aspect of it? Uh, do you have any comments about uh, the, um, how these uh, cases and these issues are presented? And uh, if you have any ideas about how we can improve the situation um, uh, and how you see the role of the media, I mean, any comment related to that, I would be very grateful to hear. Thank you very much. Uh, there was a hand over here for,
1: up for quite a while. Thank you, lady
10: in white. <laughs>
11: Hello, thank you very much, Maria Kikusi and I'm, I'm an LSC alumna in law and currently working in banking. So I have two questions. The first one is um, you have mentioned up to now uh, the human rights legal basis. What about other legal bases? And what I'm thinking exactly is that every state, at least the democratic ones, have the obligations to provide um, education, health, and most importantly, army to protect their territory. So what about thinking climate as a territorial issue? and attach it to the use solely. And what should the governments do in order to protect their territory in the sense of climate, um, climate issues and climate uh, repercussions? And how far could this go? I mean, whatever it takes. And the second question that um, could be attached to this is what about going to the international courts for climate litigation? For example, Australia, could it go to the international courts in The Hague Um, against other states because they didn't take the necessary measures uh, in their territory to uh, to mitigate all this climate um, damage that has been done I mean thank you I'm gonna thank you perfect wonderful okay Um,
1: we are down to our last five minutes and I have a bunch of hands Um, let's let's move up uh, gentlemen with the glasses
3: Uh, Hello. My name is Darren, and I work for the Climate Change Collaboration at the Sainsbury's Family Charitable Trust. Um, How soon do you think attribution science, and I think Tessa touched upon this, will start to be seen in litigation and uh, finding a link of causation between carbon majors majors emitting greenhouse gases and extreme weather events? Thank you. Thank
1: you. And I'll take one last one. That's all we'll have time for this evening. Um, And, oh, gosh, it's quite difficult. Um,
12: just, right there, thank you. Thank you very much. Um, that's all, that's good. Thank you. Uh, well, uh, it's glad to start. First of all, thanks uh, for the uh, um, this opportunity for the uh, beginning of the the year, 2020, beginning this decade that is so important for climate action and uh, health, and precisely, <coughs> Uh, why I'm here. Well, I'm uh, Ecuadorian, and I'm studying here, Environmental Policy and Regulation. And actually, uh, basically, it's all these surrounding this question. Uh, to Emily and Jacqueline, both of you, I'm really interested in uh, talking about um, rights of nature um, and dealing with climate litigation. I think... It's important right now, and I want to ask you this question. Um, there is an, uh, an international ad hoc court of human rights and uh, human nature, so, uh, rights of nature. Sorry, and uh, basically, this ad hoc court has uh, begun at one of the, the Copes recently. Uh, I think it was the 21 COPES. And basically, what, we, uh, what I need to know is, how do we uh, join this international uh, rights of nature uh, court into being something binding, something more important uh, if we talk about the uh, voiceless and also indigenous people from the global south, from a country, Latin America, and all these problems. Thank you so, thank thank you so, so much. All right, good, let us begin. Um, so, uh, media coverage.
1: Media coverage,
4: fantastic. So who would like, Ioana? Um Yes, um, well, so I, I guess in terms of climate change reaching the media, that's happened, right? This was the year that climate change was in the media. I was listening to the FT saying that the, the top five uh, issues of the year and climate change is one of them. So if, if the FT thinks so, it's uh... <laughs> clearly the case. Um, Now, if you're asking specifically about litigation, uh, well, definitely it has raised a lot of attention. My feeling, though, is that it's still very much at that risk that those working with it think, oh, everyone is talking about it, but uh, even thinking of other lawyers, uh, it's still, uh, say, practitioners in other fields, I think it's still something very remote. And uh, what I think would be important, and there are already a few initiatives like this in the UK, for example, is to get lawyers to think about what they can do in their daily practice to contribute to a transition to a low carbon economy. I I think media helps in that because you feel, okay, I'm doing something that is part of a bigger picture. And so definitely the media has an important role to play. And uh, I, I guess, not just with the naming and shaming, but also with hopefully uh, looking into and covering uh, more of the, what works, what's being done, and yeah, more on the optimistic side.
5: All right. If I can just do a quick add-on to that. So I absolutely agree with everything Joanna said, but I also just want to encourage us that we have to get very creative about the way we use digital and new media to help convey information in this space. Um, The new dean of the College of Education at Penn State said that one of the reasons she she went into education um, was because of Schoolhouse Rock, and I don't know if in the cultural context of the UK people are familiar with this, but it was a, a series of really catchy little videos of the 70s in the U.S. that helped give people like civic education, right? How a bill becomes a law, and I think about in the way in which the way we communicate is changing, and how the journalistic space has been blending and intertwining, um, right? With a with a with a common space of communication, I think that we we need to think in addition to that about how, in an impact campaign, we really can be very creative about uses of media that go beyond what we traditionally think of as journalism. Can I, can
0: um, I just what? add? <laughs> oh, there's two very, very
6: brief editions, <laughs> and we'll try to be succinct in the rest. Well, today Reuters, or Reuters advertised for a climate change editor, um, so if anyone out there is interested, apply.
5: Yeah.
7: <laughs> and picking up on Hari's point about creativity, uh, we're, we're, we're in a generation of documentaries and podcasts as the way a lot of people get their information and their awareness about issues and the best example i can give of this is that the media coverage was effective of a very high profile case peta versus uh, sea uh, and, and that got a lot of very significant media coverage about the the treatment of, of Tilikum, the killer whale, at SeaWorld, but it was the documentary Blackfish that ultimately yeah, brought yeah. SeaWorld to its knees, not the media coverage. It's, so that's...
0: brought half of my students to my course as well.
5: <laughs> yeah. um,
0: All right, let's move along to the second question in relation to
5: other legal bases. Um, Harry, did you want to begin? Sure, um, so... Um, so first of all, in terms of, of bringing climate change as, as sort of a territorial question and bringing it to international tribunals, um, one of the biggest complexities, um, if you want to bring something to the International Court of Justice, um, is that uh, there, there are sort of jurisdictional limitations, and in particular my country sort of opted out of compulsory jurisdiction, um, which might be a country one would think of of bringing in this context. So um, so, uh, there have been some creative thoughts about um, getting an advisory opinion from the Court of Justice um, and also creative thoughts about how to use international financial mechanisms and those tribunals um, uh, and the law of the sea and some tribunals under that as well. So I think there are possibilities. Um, but, but some of, but, but some of that, those, those approaches are going are, are to be, I think, challenging. The other thing I would say is um, I recommend to you the work of Maxine Burkett at the University of Hawaii, who's done some really interesting thinking about loss of territory um, in, in, in exactly the way in, in which you're framing it. And then finally, when you said you were a banker, I had assumed that you were going to um, ask about corporate and financial mechanisms. Um, So, I think a really interesting emerging area of climate change litigation, and one that we've been working on together, um, Jackie and I, um, is uh, with with my corporate colleague, uh, uh, Brett McDonald from Minnesota, um, is looking at sort of these these emerging uses of corporate and financial law mechanisms, um, both on the divestment side, so um, the use of disclosure, shareholder actions, um, and fiduciary duty. Um, but also, um, on the reinvestment side, um, the ways in which, um, for example, securities law is allowing for a broader range of investors, changing corporate forms um, to allow for like public benefit corporations. So I think there's a really interesting emerging area, and it's obviously an area kai North is working on as well, but um, uh, an emerging area of, of litigation and quasi-litigation in the corporate and financial law space. All topics after my own heart.
1: We need a second panel, really. Um, Tessa, attribution science and the majors, what do you think?
2: Um, So, I mean, in short, the good news is that the attribution science is already being used as a basis for litigation. Um, So there are a number of cases that are relying on Rick Heady's research that produced the carbon majors report that established that 90... Companies are responsible for two thirds of carbon emissions since this, basically the start of the Industrial Revolution. Um, and the most significant example of that producing an outcome in a in a forum, albeit a kind of quasi-legal one, is the recent findings of the Philippines Commission on Human Rights, which had an inquiry into the responsibility of the carbon majors, 50 carbon majors, um, for the impacts of climate change that are being experienced in the Philippines and ocean acidification. And, and the findings of the commission, although they haven't been published yet, um, are effectively that it is possible to halt, to establish that um, corporations should be held liable for the human rights impacts of climate change on the basis of that attribution science. Thank you. And finally, Jackie
1: and Emily, if you could make some comments about the rights of nature. Um,
0: and, well, uh, and informal courts, I guess, that, you know, that, yes, I can do the informal adjudication.
6: Um, well, I would say there's already
0: been a case
6: about the rights of nature. It's a Colombian case uh, brought by a group of young children, the Future Generations case, uh, and one way a legal kind of creative legal response to the problem of climate change was to assign legal personality to the Amazon rainforest. So it's it's already happening in these climate change cases. And actually to tie it back to the earlier comment about journalism and new media, if you're interested, some of my former students have produced an excellent podcast on the case. Google it.
3: And I don't know that I can say too much about informal courts and making those rulings binding, but they are really important for uh, in which to test a range of new arguments. And um, so we've seen, as Tessa has indicated and others on the panel, a lot of human rights litigation emerging. Um, And as we move more into the global south with constitutional rights, including, of course, in Ecuador, rights of nature embedded in the Constitution, you might begin to see some of these arguments emerging. There are lots of other places that litigation is happening um, beyond sort of formal courts as well. There are investment arbitrations where these issues are coming up. There are local planning courts. There are complaints to various kinds of regulators um, there are a variety of different forests. So there's many different ways in which um, lawyers and those who are interested in these areas can become involved in climate litigation because it is truly a very diverse field. There's no one sort of legal strategy that is adopted. It's really been a kind of use every tool in the toolbook approach to try and address um, what we're facing in terms of the climate crisis.
0: Well, every tool in the tool book, in, uh, indeed. Um, we are out of time and then some. So I hope you will join me in thanking, first of all, my fantastic co-chair, Dr. Annie <laughs>